John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an unusual thing for John to say. Before Jesus came to the waters, as John spoke about this one who was to come, he said that this one is whose coming is so far beyond me that I'm not worthy to stoop down and undo his sandal. And even afterwards, he will say, this is the one who ranks before me because he was before me. And yet he calls him the Lamb of God, which seems quite a small and frail title to give him. Why not the great and exalted Messiah? Why not that promised Savior of the Lord? Why the Lamb of God? We hear that language and we think of sacrifice. We think of that frailty, that offering, not necessarily the self-offering, but the offering of the one for remission, for forgiveness. And so John does say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, interesting, as we go through the Mass, some of us have been used to hearing sin in that singular sense, the form that it comes up in the Mass, the times that we use the phrase, it's in the plural. I think it's good that we have both in mind, but they are different in their focus. They speak, at least to me, of different things. If I say the sin of the world, I think about the fallen state of the human race. I think of that sin that we call the original sin from the garden that breaks that fellowship between human beings and God that actually separates us from him who is the life and therefore brings us under the sentence of death. We become mortal. It's a physical death, but also a spiritual death. That warning in the garden that in the day that you eat of that fruit, that you choose your own way instead of that of God, that you set yourselves in the center, you will surely die. And with that choice comes the sentence of death. When we talk about the sins of the world in the plural, though, we think about the things that we do, not that inherited state, but the things that we do or leave undone, the things for which we need to seek forgiveness, that we need to be reconciled with one another and with God for. Both of them, I think, are addressed within the Old Testament as we point ahead to Christ. When we think about the taking away of, of the sin of the world and particularly the sentence of death, if we think about a lamb that causes one to be spared from death, we go back to the Passover. We go back into the book of Exodus and the coming of the tenth, the last of the plagues upon Egypt. We think about that word that has come, that all of Egypt is under the sentence of death. All the firstborn in every household, firstborn of, of man, of human, and of beast as well, will die except in those households where, according to the Lord's direction, a lamb has been taken, a one-year-old lamb. The lamb's blood has been used to mark the doorposts and the lintels of the houses. And you can never sort of map that out without having the sense of doing the sign of the cross. 
But more than that, the lamb is to be taken whole, no bone to be broken. One of those sentences that echoes in in the back of our heads as we come to Calvary. No, no bone was, not a bone of his was broken. But the lamb is to be roasted and consumed by the household. This is not just a sacrifice made on their behalf, but they need to eat the lamb as well. And it's just an, an interesting thought that go, comes into my mind when I think about that, that in the sacrifices that are set out under the law, the people don't normally eat of the sacrifice that is offered, but the priest has a prime portion that is his. And Israel was set out to be a priestly people, to be God's priests before the world. Even the whole idea of the, there's the sin there at Sinai, at the sin with the golden calf that changes something of their status, but that's for another time. They're to eat this lamb and they're all is to be consumed on that day. But those households in which that has taken place and the the doorposts and lintels have been marked, the angel of death passes over and the firstborn are spared. And the firstborn, there's a lot going on at that point. The, The firstborn represents the whole future. That's the primary inheritor within the family. But Israel has also been designated before Pharaoh as the firstborn of the Lord. And if you refuse to let my firstborn go, I will kill your firstborn. There's just an interesting thought as well that there's a word that goes out to all of Egypt. Israel is in the land of Goshen, and there's a separation that's been made with the different plagues, things that fall upon the Egyptians, but those in Goshen are spared. But this is on all of them. And even as the sentence is on all of them, one wonders then if some of the Egyptians were to respond to that word. Were they too to be spared? If you go back a few plagues, if you go back to the seventh plague, it's the hail that falls upon. I don't know if you have all the, the plagues marked out in your head as to what order they fall in and which they are. But when the hail comes, there's actually a warning that goes out to everyone. And we're told that the servants of Pharaoh, the Egyptians, who feared the word of the Lord and obeyed it, got their animals and their slaves in out of the weather, they were saved in the hail. There are two more plagues that follow, but that's the the locusts and then the darkness. And the darkness, there's a difference between, um, between Egypt and Goshen, but they're not things that one can avoid. But when we get to the tenth plague, there is that warning. So is it possible... Is it possible that we've got the foreshadowing of the Gentiles being gathered in? Those who turn in faith to the Lord, even though they were outside of Israel, might yet be gathered in. One more detail as we come to this point and and the night of the Passover and the new beginning that Israel is about to enter into. When they're told to take a lamb, there's an interesting um, detail in the description. They're told that they can take the lamb from the sheep or from the goats. Now, if I asked you, well, what's a lamb? You think of, well, it's a young sheep. If I asked you, what do you call a young goat? Well, you would say probably a kid. 
But in this case, the lamb can be of the goats as well. And that's worth holding in the back of your heads as you go on and think about offering for sin. So here's the deliverance from death. Here's the deliverance likewise from the bondage in Egypt because it's at the, following that plague that they are cast out. And they make their journey across and they're going to pass through the Red Sea and enter into a whole new relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 10 is worth reading as, Mos, uh, as Paul reflects back and says that they were as kind of baptized into Moses in the cloud and through the sea. And they became that new people in their relationship with God. Then we think about the sins of the world. The Lamb who carries away sin. And that takes us to the Day of Atonement. If you're reading the Old Testament, you go to Leviticus 16 and things are set out. You do well to read it alongside of Hebrews kind of 7 through 10, about 8 through 10, um, where it's picked up in the symbolism and how Christ fulfills things. But the Day of Atonement, there are provisions for dealing with sin within the community. But once a year, there's that particular day where there's offering for the sins through the whole year of all the people. Sin sets us at odds with each other. This is one of those places where we have a very literal English term that on this day they are to be made at one again. And at one is the word, atonement, as we pronounce it. But on that day, we're told that the high priest needed to prepare himself. He needed to make a sacrifice for his sins. There's a bullock that's offered. There is a a ram that's offered as a burnt offering as well. For the people, there will be two goats that are brought forward. One will be a sin offering. The other will be the scapegoat, and we'll come back to him. There's also a ram to be offered as a burnt offering. But there's something of the blood of the priest's sacrifice, and that, for the sins of the people, blood that is taken and smeared upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost sanctuary. And the mercy seat is, the, in Hebrew, the kaporet. It's from that that we get the word kippur. And if you think about If you've got your Hebrew together and you think of the Day of Atonement, it's Yom Kippur. Some translate the the atonement cover over the Ark of the Covenant. It's that covering that has the two carved cherubim. We've talked about this one before. It's bound up with this whole business of in the wilderness, but then even into the temple. The cloud of God's presence coming down upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies the one who dwells between the cherubim, who is seated above the cherubim. He speaks to Moses there. And there's the picture of the Lord's presence coming down and the blood of the people's sacrifice for their sins and the two meeting. And there the atonement is made. I was thinking about that very recently in remembering our late Pope Benedict XVI because he quite exalts in that as an image of the people before God. There's the offering that is made there. There's the further sacrifice that's presented on the altar then. But of the two goats, 
The one has been sacrificed for sin, but the other one has been designated by Lot as the scapegoat. And upon that goat, the priest places his his hands on its head and pronounces the people's sins over it and then sends it out into the wilderness symbolically to carry away the sins of the people. And with the language of Jesus as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, we have that scapegoat image. We might not have connected it without thinking about lambs that could be of the sheep and of the goats. But the image is very clear. On the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the sins of the whole world. He bears them up. He carries them to the grave and leaves them there in the grave. It's such, though, that as he rises up clear of that sin and is raised up to the right hand of God, takes our redeemed humanity to be in that eternal life with the Father, that we, as we are baptized into him, are baptized into his death, that those sins might be put off our lives, that that sin that stands between us and God might be redeemed, that we might be restored to eternal communion in him. Accordingly, when we come back to the baptism that is taking place at the Jordan, John actually has a baptism that is for repentance and remission of sins, the washing away of sins, to prepare people for what God is doing. But in Christ, the sins are not simply washed off like on the Day of Atonement, but are taken away. And it's a baptism not just out of sin, but into Jesus Christ a baptism that is with His Holy Spirit, that He gives us that new life within to transform us within, not just to wash us outwardly, but to change us within, to make us new, to give us that new birth, that we might be born of Him, that we might be raised up into life in Him, that that perfect atonement might be made. The intriguing thing then in John's image is that there is where Christ is most fully glorified in his offering to take away the sins as he, as he affects that. And if you go to the last book of the Bible, you'll notice that St. John has the vision of Christ. And here on earth, he presents himself as Lord of the church. Lord over the seven churches and his glory is evident, the radiance that is shining there. But when John is taken up thereafter into heaven and sees the sun in all his glory and his heavenly glory, how does he appear? John turned and beheld a lamb appearing as though it had been slain. In fact, the full glory of Christ is there in his self-offering in the Lamb who is slain, who takes away the sin of the world in whom we are reconciled to the Father, who takes away our sins, all the things that stand between us and our God who is life, restores us to communion in him. So there is no greater accolade to offer to the one who John declares ranks before me because he was before me. 
the eternal Son, the Lamb who was slain. He it is who meets us here in the sacrament, continuing to give Himself to us for your sins, for mine, for those of the whole world, and for the sin which bound us from the garden to death. We have life, new life, eternal life in Him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.